With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. It is Sunday, June the 3rd, 1 o'clock in the p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm your host, Jake Counts. Riding shotgun with me is T.J. Smith. Thank you for tuning in to this We Are Not Cattle Radio special report, Inside the Shadow Government. So, When you talk about the shadow government, most people will dismiss you as a conspiracy theorist. So we've addressed conspiracy theory on this show many times before, but the one thing that I'm going to ask for my listeners today and anybody that listens to this transmission is I want you to break your normalcy bias. And for those of you that don't know what a normalcy bias is, it is a psychological proven term that basically states If something hasn't happened in the past or has never happened in the past, then it'll never happen in the future. A great example would be something to the extent of, I've never had a tornado hit my house, therefore a tornado will never hit my house now or in the future. So just because you've never never heard heard of some of these things that we're talking about, and just because this is not something that is addressed in the mainstream media or that is taught in the history books, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It actually might mean the exact opposite. Now, I do want to start the show by playing a clip from our president, John F. Kennedy, who warned us of all these quote-unquote conspiracy theories In one simple speech, it's about two and a half minutes. I've actually cut it down a little bit. But I want you to listen to what our president was trying to tell us. And then I want you to go down this journey with TJ and myself to really understand how all of the system works and how you are being manipulated on a day-to-day basis to basically divert your attention to people like the Kardashians and stuff of that nature to fully distract you while there is a giant, I want to say, a giant grid being set up behind the scenes that not only did JFK warn us about, but Eisenhower and many others have warned us about in the past. So here is the clip from one of our greatest presidents in the United States. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically, opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago 
that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweigh the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. So that was JFK basically highlighting exactly what we're going to talk about today. And I thought that that was a great way to start the broadcast because it really does go blow by blow of what we're going to cover here today. And the, and the way that we're going to break down the show is we're going to start out by talking about the military-industrial complex. And then we'll get into the shadow government and how it pertains to both local and international governments. And then we're going to talk about the banking system and how that plays into the shadow government, obviously by funding certain facets of it, if not funding the entire thing behind closed doors or just out in the open. And then at the very end of the show, we're going to take some calls, and feel free to call in about any of the topics that we've ever covered, but we just want to hear your feedback. And I'll go ahead and give out the call-in number. It is uh, 602-753-1916, and um, I'll give you guys another cue towards the end of the broadcast when we're going to open the phones up, or you can just call in at your leisure if you want to sit on hold. Or we'll probably be able to get into your calls in between some of these segments. So the first thing we want to get into um, is the military-industrial complex. And TJ is going to start us off. So TJ, thanks for joining us again here on the broadcast. And um, let's let's dive into the complex and the Iron Triangle. And just to give everybody at home a heads up, you might want to get a pen and piece of paper because we're going to be covering the waterfront on all of the issues and all of the different subgroups of the shadow government 
And these are little composites that everyone needs to know about, and you need to do your research. We're going to give you the once-over on them, give you probably a, a minute-and-a-half synopsis of what each group is role is, and then we're going to break down how it pertains to, once again, national governments and the the open talk of global governance from the supposed leaders of our free society here. So, TJ, um, take it away on the military-industrial complex. What is the military-industrial complex, a lot of people may ask. Well, it's a phrase, and it was first utilized in, in an American report at the turn of the 20th century. The military-industrial complex was later immortalized by outgoing U.S. President Dwight D. Eisenhower in his January 17, 1961 farewell address to the nation. In his speech, he cites the military-industrial complex as a warning to the American people to not let this establishment begin to dictate America's action at home or abroad. And we actually have that clip with President Dwight D. Eisenhower. And if, Jake, if you could actually play that for all the listeners. Okay, we're going to load it up now. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. So, what's what Mr. Um, well, President Dwight D. Eisenhower was talking about is a military-industrial complex. It basically is a relationship between parties that are charged to manage wars. This is between the military, the presidential administration, and the Congress, and also companies that produce weapons inside the war industry. Remember that war actually creates more money, and this is what you are seeing today. Notice how almost every between a 10-year time span, there has always been a war. If you, I mean, and no, I mean, even if you look at the U.S. military um, spending budget, you know, back in 2009 it was 515.4 billion, 2010 651 billion, and now in 2012 it is 1.4 trillion dollars. The U.S. military accounts for 40 percent of global arms spending, and it's seven times bigger than China. So the military-industrial complex. It's really what we call an iron triangle. An iron triangle is a relation to, is a relationship between bureaucrats, politics, and Congress. What they do is they feed each other and they make sure that their agenda is active is actually actively being sought out. So let's say that Jake was a bureaucrat, I was a congressman. The bureaucrat was actually put pressure on me to basically to be able to pass, let's say that we talking about attacking Iran, as they are talking about doing now. Well, inside this iron triangle, we make sure that we are able to constantly be in war. Because the military-industrial complex, 
like I said before, it's an iron triangle that fuels a nation that has been sunken its teeth into capitalism. The problem with capitalism is that those who have financial control of a corporation use any means to make sure they continue to make and save money, even if it means hurting the middle and lower classes. War creates money in the U.S. and European nations have been run over by the financial powers that be that benefit wars. Within a 10-year span, there is always a war. World War II ended in 1945. Then came the Cold War from 1945 to 91. The Korean War, 1950, ended in 53. Two years later, Vietnam, 55. And then, of course, that ended in 75, and then we went into Grenada. And then, of course, from Grenada, we went into um, the Persian Gulf War. Ten years later from here, we inside the War on Terror, and now we are embarking inside another war with Iran as well as in Syria. So, Jake... You already know that these guys are hell-bent on actually going into war because that's the only thing they care about. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it fuels the mechanism. So always remember that when you're watching the propaganda news, like I like to call it, when you're watching CNN, when you're watching Fox, that, that those companies that own – or excuse me, that those media outlets are owned by large corporations, and the large corporations sit at this big roundtable with the military-industrial complex, and they're actually paid to ignore certain topics. They're paid to go after certain things and focus the, focus the population's attention somewhere else. That's why you see the big push for the media outlets such as E! News and stuff like that. As long as you can distract the public, you're not going to have any kind of pushback. It's just like what Eisenhower said in his speech. The only way to stop the military-industrial complex is you have to have an alert and knowledgeable population. And I think that anybody that listens to this broadcast will agree that we probably have the exact opposite. Number one, they're not alert. The only thing that they're alert of is who's playing the game tonight whether it's going to be Boston and Miami, or if it's going to be Oklahoma City and San Antonio, or when's the next you know show for the Kardashians come on, or you know it, it's it, you've you've been distracted, everyone. And once again, break your normalcy bias, break your conditioning, and look at what's really going on around you, and you'll see that what's being set up is a high tech spy grid that's going in all over the world. It's not just here in the United States. It's not just over in London. You know, we've broken that down. We broke that down on the last show about the um about the spy grid in all of these different countries and how it plays a role in the overall global agenda. Now, I did want to touch on also that the military industrial complex was was actually covered in a 1956 book by C. Wright Mills which claimed that his book called The Power Elite is what it's entitled, that the military, business, political leaders are driven by mutual endless interests with real leaders – are the real leaders of the state and are effectively beyond democratic control, which is 100 percent true if you look at the way that, that we have our government acting and we have other governments acting. It, it really becomes – a self-fulfilling prophecy for them in the fact that they want global governance. They want command and control over the entire population of the world. And TJ and I don't get into this very much, but it's something that needs to be talked about, and that's the UN. Now, we're going to transition into the shadow government, and to give you guys a breakdown of what we're going to cover 
we're going to cover the UN, so once again, have your pen and paper ready, the United Nations, the Trilateral Commission, the Club of Rome, the Council on Foreign Relations, Bohemian Grove, the Committee of 300, NATO, and of course what just ended this afternoon, the Bilderberg Group. It actually might wrap up today and then they'll all go home tomorrow, but that's what we're going to get into. And so transitioning off of that, I am going to cover a brief synopsis of what the United Nations is. And I'm sure that everybody has seen the pretty little blue flag that they have. With, um, But you really need to understand what it is and what its job is supposed to be. And then look at the agenda that they push now and see if that's really what it was set up to do. So the United Nations is an international organization that stated that it's – its fundamental operation is to facilitate the cooperation of international law, international security, economic development, social progress, human rights, and the achievement of world peace. Now, TJ, don't laugh too hard when you hear me say that last term. You know, These guys are few and far between trying to achieve world peace. If anything, I would take it a step further and say that they're trying to achieve world domination, and they look at the, at the, at the world as a giant chessboard. So the UN was founded in 1945 after World War II, replacing the League of Nations, which fell under heavy scrutiny because the population was informed and they understood what the overall agenda would be. And they also understood that if you leave, if you leave control into a bunch of bureaucrats, they're not going to serve the people's interests at all. And there has been some talk about if you wanted to really redefine the UN would be let the people vote on their UN leader, and then they could actually have them booted out. But instead it's a bureaucracy, an unelected bureaucracy at that with a, with a large majority of steering committees that goes into funding this overall agenda. So currently, there are 193 member states, including every internationally recognized sovereign nation except for the Vatican City because they're exempt from almost everything. With its offices around the world, the UN has specialized agencies decide on substantive and administrative issues in regular meetings held throughout the year. Now, there are six principal organizations. There is the General Assembly, the Security Council the Economic and Social Council, the Secretariat, the International Court of Justice, the United States or the United Nations Trustees Council. Among the prominent UN system agencies include the World Health Organization, the World Food Program, the United the UNICEF program or United Nations Children's Fund. And these are the most and the most prominent position is the Secretary General, which has been Man Moon of South Korea since 2007. It's headquartered in New York City. Now, I do want to get into – we won't touch on Agenda 21 too much, but that is something that you all need to be aware of. But I do want to go into an article that I found online that was from March of this year that talked about the UN Arms Trade Treaty. Now, what is the UN Arms Trade Treaty? Just to give you a highlight, and I'm going to pull out some excerpts from the article and kind of go over it, and then we're going to expand on it, and then TJ and I will expand on the overall agenda for this group. But this basically is a – every gun owner is concerned – well, the article says that every gun owner is concerned about the right to keep and bear arms, 
is aware of the international gun interdiction movement that has been working for more than a decade to achieve a UN arms trade treaty that would cover not only tanks, helicopters, heavy weapons, but would also cover rifles, handguns, and shotguns. And if you aren't following this issue closely, you would know that it's been more aggressive over the recent years pushing for such a treaty to cover firearms ammunition. So what does this mean? The first thing that you have to do if you're going to conquer a country or if you're going to conquer a said group is that you need to, number one, make sure that you disarm the population. And that's what they're trying to push across here. You'll see Hillary Clinton going around toting that we need to ban small firearms. We need to ban semi-autos. A semi-automatic weapon, guys, is just like is a is a pistol. A pistol can be considered a semi-automatic weapon because you don't have to you don't have a bolt action rifle like you used to. You don't have to cock back the actual hammer and shoot it every time. It's just a it's just as fast as you can pull the trigger. That's considered a semi-automatic weapon. So what they would do is they would impose this international law that would supersede the Constitution, but as we all know, the Constitution is the law of the land, and it can't be superseded by any kind of international group or, or international law, but they'll try to push it on the United States population. And they might actually achieve it just because the population is brainwashed in every aspect of the in every aspect of their everyday life, that guns are bad. If you watch shows, I watch a show called Grimm, and it's really great. But what I see on there is the manipulation of how guns are are okay for police officers to use, but if the population has it, it's something very scary. So you see this in everyday life, and you also see what what the big agenda is going to be, and that's going to be disarm the population and then push you know, through the World Health Organization and the World Food Program, which they've already talked about having a, rural, a World Food Council. They are going to control the population of each individual sovereign country by rationing off food, and they're going to give you a certain amount of rations per household, and they're going to give you a certain amount per country, and they would divvy up the resources of the world depending on what they see fit. Now, what does this mean? Well, I went and saw a movie last night called The Hunger Games with my wife. I, I had a little bit of a background of what it was on, and my wife talks about – or I talk to her about Agenda 21 all the time and and what, what it really is where it's a command and control grid, and they actually ration off food, and she started reading these books. Because her students were reading them. And so she starts reading the book, and she comes to me and starts telling me that they're, they're going to break up the world into, you know, 12. They broke up the this world that they live in into 12 different regions. And, and you'll see later on in the Club of Rome how they talk about breaking up the world into 10 regions. So there's a lot of truth in fiction. So – Anyway, the the Hunger Games, and I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but basically it's it's a gladiatorial event where you have the you have what's called the capital. They sit at the top, and the capital is full of bureaucrats, trendies, people that are well off, you know, highfalutin types. And then you have each individual segment, which basically has a specific role to play. And you have one that's like a mining colony. You have others that do certain things. And they pluck, they pluck, you know, these little kids out of their certain segments, and then bring them into a gladiatorial event, and it's basically a fight to the death. So, what does that mean? It is, 
it is exactly what they're trying to set up. Because when you watch the movie, there's cameras everywhere. Everybody's watched. And when the, the kids go into arena, they actually get injected with a tracker. So all of this stuff has actually been announced by not only the United States government, but governments around the world saying that we need to do this all for your safety. And once again, as JFK told us at the very beginning, you know, there is going to be a big push for security, and it is not in the best interest of the population. So TJ, that's my take on the UN. Do you want to, you want to expand a little bit on that? And we can get into the, the wars, but I do want to get to that um, – I do want to get to that one clip that we have, so we'll wrap up with that for the U.N. So you got anything else to add on that? Well, you know, one thing you have to understand about um, the U.N. is, like you said, that from, well, before the U.N., you had the League of Nations. And the League of Nations was the first attempt to ask for a global government. Now, the shadow government, um, there's two forms. You have the national um, shadow government, and you have the global shadow government. The national one is for the continuity of government. Yep. And um, what this does is this makes sure that, okay, and just in case if there is some type of um, severe condition here inside America, that our government would actually go on. The global government is, it is the one that actually wants to unify a central government all over the world to be able to rule. Now, NATO is the second step at this, and as you see that now, as we were talking before, uh, we actually went on air, Jake, and we was talking about how um, Leon Panetta, uh, Barack Obama, these guys are now, they're not going to Congress anymore, they are going to NATO, talking about a coalition in which that now they are able to um, have wars without giving, without having approval from Congress, and this is, of course, against Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution. So, yeah, let's, let's play that um, – let's play the, um, the, the clip from Panetta, and then we'll come back and wrap up the, the U.N. section. And um, this is absolutely traitorous, people. When you hear this, this is admitting open tyranny on the United States saying that we can bypass the law of the land, which is the, con which is the Constitution of the United States, and we can just issue war – and I hate to use this term, but it's, it's pretty, pretty effective. We can issue term willy-nilly with whomever we want. All we need is a resolution from an international coalition, and then bada-bing, bada-boom, we can take American soldiers and put them into harm's way. So here's the, uh, here's the clip from Leon Panetta. Are, are you saying and is the president taking the position he would not act um, if it was in our interest to do so if the UN Security Council did not agree? When it comes to uh, uh, the kind of military action where we want to build con uh, a coalition and work with our international partners, then obviously we would like to have some kind of legal basis on which to do it as we did in Libya. Now, some sort of legal basis. We worried about international legal basis, but nobody worried about the fundamental constitutional uh, legal basis that this Congress has over war. We were not asked uh, stunningly, in, in direct violation of the War Powers Act, whether or not you believe it's constitution. It certainly didn't comply with it. We spent our time worrying about the UN, the Arab League, NATO, and too little time, in my opinion, worried about the elected representatives of the United States. Do you think that you can act without Congress uh, to and initiate a no-fly zone in Syria? 
Here comes the tyranny. Without congressional approval. You know, again, uh, our our goal would be to uh, to seek international permission, and uh, we would we would come to the Congress uh, and inform you uh, and determine uh, how best to approach this. Uh, whether or not we would uh, want to get uh, permission from the Congress, uh, I think those are issues we would have to discuss as we decide what to do here. Well, I'm almost breathless about that because what I heard you say is we're going to seek international approval and they will come and tell the Congress what we might do and we might seek congressional approval. No, well, I want to just say to you, that's a big dish. Wouldn't you agree uh, you've served in the Congress? Yeah. Wouldn't you agree that that uh, would be pretty breathtaking to the average American? So would you like to clarify that? But I've, uh, I, I, well, it's it's actually funny. He 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 gives them the out there. The senator gives them the out to come back and say, no, 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 no. I I, I misspoke. But then Panetta reiterates exactly what he told him in that two minute clip. And it's just like Barack Obama said that that he's going to go invade Libya for the credibility of the UN. You know, you guys have to wake up to this stuff. This is not this is not puppy dogs and ice cream anymore. We're starting to lose the foundation of our democratic republic. And any time that somebody tells you that we live in a democracy, be sure to tell them we don't because if 51% vote to kill the other 49%, that doesn't happen. So you do have trial by juries, you do have you know all of these checks and balances in place to keep stuff like this from happening, but now it's just openly announced, like world governments openly announced, and the Bank of the World talked about how we're going to need a a World Bank of Finance last week to in order to stabilize the economy. That's a great idea. Let's put all the money into the hands of a bunch of criminal bankers so they can steal it from us faster. TJ, your thoughts? The main thing is that this right here broadcasted live on television on C-SPAN. Okay, so see how bold these individuals are to say, okay, well, you know, we are not going to seek approval from Congress. We will seek approval from international countries, and then we will tell you what we did. That is pure spitting on the Constitution, if I have ever seen it before. And notice, you didn't see this inside mainstream media. Why? Because the mainstream media is also controlled by them. So they're keeping you blinded to what is really going on. And like Jake said, we do not live inside a democracy no more. The democracy has been thrown out the window and it is being replaced with uh, what? A dictatorship, an oligarchy. These individuals of the offshore cartel, I mean, these individuals are controlling the U.S. How clearer can you get when he said that we will not seek Congress approval, we will seek foreign approval. Yeah, and it gets it gets even better if you listen to the entire clip. He says we'll seek foreign approval from the UN or if we form a coalition of international countries to go in and attack somebody, then that's okay too. You gotta be kidding me. You know, we're putting People, these are American troops. These are your next-door neighbors. These are people on their street. These are people that you went to high school with that are getting put into war for, because of why? Because we uh, – a bunch of like five or six people that are in charge of government got together and said, hey, we're going to go bomb these people. Well, we don't need approval from the – we don't need approval from the people. We don't need approval from their representatives. We can just do it. Why? Because nobody's going to stop us. Who's going to stop us? 
Nobody, because the population's asleep. It's just, you know, I told TJ this before the show started, and and I want to reiterate it because my father's retired military, and he and he got extremely upset when he heard Barack Obama get on television and say, "Well, when I put these troops into harm's way, that's a mind trick, people. That is, you know, he didn't write these speeches. People write these for him." He said that deliberately so that people will bow down and grovel and say, oh, yeah, well, you know, the president does – you know, he does call the shots. No, he doesn't. He's supposed to be a checks and balance guy. All he's supposed to do is sign a contract. He's supposed to be the million-dollar pen, not sending troops into foreign countries and saying, I did it. I do this for the credibility of the UN. Come on. I mean when are people going to wake up? So, TJ, let's – Let's transition off to the UN before I blow a gasket here, and let's um let's talk about the uh, once you cover the trilateral commission, and I'll touch on the the Club of Rome next. Well, you see, after um, the United Nations was set up, it wasn't moving quick enough. So what they did was they created two groups: the Trilateral Commission and the Council on Foreign Relations. The Trilateral Commission is represented by three regions: North America, Europe, and Japan. It was created in 1973 by Brzezinski, presidential advisor to President Jimmy Carter and David Rockefeller, and, and David Rockefeller, both who were key members of the Council of Foreign Relations. The trilateral mission statement is this, close trilateral cooperation, keeping the peace, managing the world economy, fostering economic development, and elevating world poverty, which will improve the chances of a smooth and peaceful evolution of the global system. The commission has brought together power brokers from military, politics, finance, and business from all over the world. The U.S., Russia, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and the European Union. The final plan is to have a united union consisting of the North American Union, European Union, and Japan into one major union. So what does this mean? The Trilateral Commission was placed to speed up the creation of world government, since the United Nations did not accomplish this task sooner. At first, the League of Nations was supposed to be the groundwork for a global government, but that failed. When the global elite fought amongst them over power for which type of government would be the ruling basis of the world government, which was in World War II, Fossils versus Communists, the Fossils won and the UN was created. The Trilateral Commission is just another elite group that issues to bring together wealthy and powerful driven men and women to usher in a unified, singular government. So what you see me and Jake talking about as going back to the Iron Triangle is groups like the Trilateral Commission and other groups that we are going to get to and other groups that we are going to get into later on that is a part of this Iron Triangle. They keep the money moving, they keep the wars moving, and they keep the power moving all unto themselves. And they are ailing, they are basically taking out Congress, taking out the Senate, and they are creating this oligarchy in which the top elite rule. And through these government structures and through these special interest groups, they actually control everything that happens. The people do not have the power no more. The power now belongs to the wealthy global elite. Hey, do you want to go ahead and cover the uh, the CFR because those two really do go hand in hand, and then I'll uh, I'll pick up the Club of Rome and uh, Bohemian Grove after that. Most definitely, Council on Foreign Relations. Now, uh, usually 
before you can get into the Council of Foreign Relations, you have to serve inside the Trilateral Commission first. They see how well you do, and then if you're good enough, they bring you into the Council of Foreign Relations, which is almost like the big dogs. And then from the Council of Foreign Relations, you then get into the Bilderberg Group, which we are going to cover later on. The Council of Foreign Relations was established after World War One in an attempt to ensure the financial and political life of the U.S. and Britain. Their mission statement is this. And speaking of public enlightenment, it is well to bear in mind that the council has chosen as its function the enlightenment of the leaders of opinion. These in turn, each in his own group sphere, spread the knowledge gained here in ever-wielding circles. These, indivi these individuals within the CFR also hold membership within the Bilderberg Group as well as the, as well as the Trilateral Commission. The CFR is committed to eliminating national borders and sovereignty. Members advocate merging nations in, into one centralized world government, and for 90 years they have shaped the U.S., Britain, France, Canada, Japan, and Germany governments and nations into what they want it to be. The CFR and Trilateral Commission's main purpose is to infiltrate and persuade decision-making bodies of government, education, business, military, and media. And on record, President Bush, President Nixon, President Ford, President Carter, and President Clinton were all a part of the Council or, trilater or, trilater or Trilateral Commission before they got into office. So what does this mean? The CFR is just another organization that is pushing ties with wealth and powerful men and women to accept and partake in their agenda of a world government. It means that not only are the elite looking for world government in the European Union, North America, and Japan, but they are also going to nations that are not fully on ties with their regime. It means that no one is safe. Yeah, there really is nowhere to hide from these guys, and it's once again, it's a it's a complete oligarchy slash bureaucracy that's going to try to establish world government, and the way that they're going to do it is they're going to bankrupt the nations. And they're going to bankrupt them individually, and then they're going to accelerate it. And and for those of you that didn't listen to my broadcast that I did a couple of weeks ago about the financial – the situation that we're in about global finance and, and how fractional reserve banking works, I even said it in my broadcast that, that after Greece falls, that Spain's going to be next, then Italy, then Portugal, or some variation of that. And you can see it, and it's not because I'm a genius, people. It's because I'm paying attention, because I understand how this stuff works. You know, you have derivatives, which are basically bets that companies make and individuals make that actually sign, and then they sign on their your government onto the derivatives debt. So basically, it's like going in a casino. For me, saying I want to put a million dollars down on black, and yeah, I'm going to put it on the American people if I lose. It's exactly what they're doing. So let's talk about how we got here, and let's talk about some of the think tanks that are involved. Um, the first one I wanted to cover is the Club of Rome. Now, the Club of Rome was founded in April of 1968, and it was founded by an Italian industrialist. And it's a small international group of people from the fields of academia, social science, diplomacy, industry, and they all met in Rome, Italy, hence the name the Club of Rome. They've actually produced a couple of different papers. The first one that they produced was entitled Limits of Growth. This has actually sold more than 12 million copies worldwide, and it's been in over 30 different translations. And what it talked about was the unsustainable economic growth 
was actually going to reach its precipice because of because of you have natural resources that are basically scarce like oil. So and in, in 1973, the oil crisis increased public concern about this problem, and even before the limits of growth was published, it was um, there was an elaborate model that had um, a gentleman by the name of Pestel, and I'm going to butcher his name, but Mesorovic. And what they did, they were from they did a it was a case of Western Reserve University, and what they did was they had about 200,000 equations, and they ran these equations and found out that, hey, you know, a lot of this stuff can be avoided because a lot of these things are controlled by human beings. So after they came out with the, um, the original document, Limits of Growth, they came out with a new document called Mankind at the Turning Point, which was the official breakdown of how all of these different – Sectors can play off on one another, from you know artificial growth to to limiting the number of natural resources that the humans use. Now, what is really interesting is in 1993 they published another another publication called the First Global Revolution, and here is the synopsis that I found, and it says according to this book, divided nations require common enemies to unite them. Either a real one or else one is invented for that purpose, Al-Qaeda. Because of a sudden absence of traditional enemies, new enemies must be identified. In searching for new enemies to unite us, we wake up the idea that the population, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and, and the like would fit the bill. These are dangers caused by human intervention, and only through changed attitudes and behavior that they could be overcome. So then, therefore, the real enemy then is humanity itself. So what does that, what does that in, in essence, you know, wrap up to say? Well, once again, this is just psychology one-on-one. It's, it's mob psychology. So if you've ever studied psychology, the, uto- the utopian society will never work because you have to have the, the, the tie that binds, if you will, and the tie that typically binds humans together the most is fear. And hope is the other one that they use, and you'll see those used interchangeably. Now, fear is a powerful motivator. And what used to happen when, when we were all back in little tribes, we all had fear. Now, we had either fear of the next-door neighbor tribe or we had fear of something out in the woods. But either way, if you utilize the fear, you could actually unite that little group. And the same thing applies to a larger population or larger sample size, if you will. So why do we have the war with Al-Qaeda? Why do we have the Al-Qaeda boogeyman? Why do we have all of these different things? They're manufactured because there is no real threat. There's no real threat, so they have to manufacture something to get the people to rally behind it. And once once you are aware of this, and once you see this from, from this angle right here, once again, this is a 1993 pub, uh, publication that they get the – it's a think tank. They get the smartest guys in the in the world together and say, what do we do? How do we get everybody to to follow the same path? And this is what they've come up with, and it's published, and it's documented. But yet if you go up to anybody on the street and say, hey, you know, you know, Al-Qaeda is actually funded by the West, and, and 
and after we overthrew Libya that we actually inserted them in as as the um as the government people would say well I thought al qaeda was bad well it, once you get over the mind trick of al qaeda being this ever present under every table kind of kind of entity and you see it for what it really is it really becomes comical wouldn't you say so tj it really is and just and, and for anybody who say oh well you know um, Al Qaeda is not funny about the U.S. There is actually a clip with um, Hillary Clinton actually admitting that the U.S. did create Al Qaeda mm-hmm. back inside um, when the Russians invaded Afghanistan. That is on record. And then she also goes to say that they funded them. And like Jake said, it was reported in mainstream media that there was Al Qaeda members that was actually fighting against Gaddafi, and that Hillary Clinton actually said that well, we support the revolutionists. The same thing inside Syria. You actually have the U.S. saying we support the revolutionists in Syria, but it's on record that Al Qaeda members are actually leading this revolution. And just and just I believe um, last week they had a picture showing a United Nations soldiers with an Al Qaeda insurgent together standing there. So <laughs> I mean, come on, people! It's like wake up. I mean. There is no real enemy. All the enemies that exist were created. The Hamas, Al-Qaeda, and so forth. The Muslim Brotherhood. These are people that were created. They're created and funded by large governments in order to stir up trouble and turmoil and menace the people. And then they can use that as a pre- as a precedent if they if – they, once again, 9-11 is a great example. If you attack – if you attack your own country and then blame it on a foreign entity that doesn't exist like al-Qaeda, then you have the precedent to say, okay, well, we need to beef up security because al-Qaeda is a big threat. And if you do remember, because I remember it very well, the the months after 9-11, everybody was like, okay, yeah, let's pass the Patriot Act. That sounds good. Yeah, I don't even know what it is, but it sounds like it's good. If it's going to protect me from getting a plane flown into a building, I want that. Well, guess what you signed on to? He signed on to a bunch of you know blue shirt wearing pot pot belly pedophiles to grab your junk and like I talked about before to reach inside your waistband. So it, it's it's absolutely amazing that when you when you boil it down and when you see it for what it really is, it becomes comical. So you know I'm going to transition onto the Bohemian Grove, and this is a very this is probably not going to take very long, but it does need to be talked about. Now the Bohemian Grove was something once again that didn't exist. Until Alex Jones got in and exposed it, and then all of a sudden it does exist, and then they had this show on the History Channel called um, – oh my gosh, I'm going to – it's by this guy named Meltzer or something like that where basically he goes around to uncover conspiracy theories and find out what really is a um, a conspiracy or what isn't. So he goes to the Bohemian Club, and he, it's himself. It's another reporter. And it's this um, it's this uh, guide, I guess, and then Alex Jones was with um, was with him as well. So Alex talks about his experience and going in there and watching the cremation of care. And for those of you that don't know what that is, it's actually a ritual that they do that simulates uh, human sacrifice of a of a child, and that's supposed to give you um, supposed to give you power um, in kind of a um, in kind of a demonic way. But what happens is in this show. You see, you see them about to get captured. Alex Jones bails. These guys get put in jail for a night, and he actually gets away. And then they get put in jail for a night, and they come out the next day, and their eyes 
on – you cannot believe how freaking freaked out these people were, and they're trying to act all calm for the History Channel and say, well, yeah, there wasn't really anything going on, but it looks like they all just peed their pants. Oh, I mean yeah. it really does, yeah. and, and come on, people. You know, this these things have been going on for years, and the reason that I'm bringing up the Bohemian Grove is basically it's it's a it's a getaway for the ruling elite. Now there's been talks about, you know, some other things that are there, you know, they bring in a bunch of, you know, male prostitutes or whatever and they all run around crazy. But the one thing that I wanted to talk about is that it is admitted that the Bohemian Grove is where the Manhattan Project was hatched. Oh, so yeah. if it doesn't exist then how did the Manhattan Project come into existence if this private club full of you know, royalty, full of uh, the upper echelon, the upper elite, how, do, how does this not exist if the actual Manhattan Project was given you know, its kudos for coming out of the Bohemian Grove? And that's not something I'm just making up. That's on Wikipedia. That's in mainline history. So you know, anyway – I don't want to spend a lot of time on the Bohemian Grove because, and actually, one of our uh, one of our listeners here is pretty pretty funny talking about the uh, tall owl god, and that's one of the things that the um, that the ruling elite do talk about is that for some reason that they have um, a big affinity for owls and they have a big affinity for their clocks being five minutes fast, and they're really big sticklers on that. And if you wanted to uh, to see a breakdown, you can go to my website, uh, wearenotcattle.net. And I actually have under the education tab, there's an interview with Charlotte Iserby where she talks about her father and her grandfather being very finicky about the clocks and about the owls that they had. And for some reason, it's a big um, – I guess it's so that they're five minutes ahead of the population or something like that. So, TJ, why don't you uh, talk about the Committee of 300, and then we'll wrap up with uh, with NATO and the um, and the Bilderberg group that doesn't exist that met this weekend. Well, you know, um, the Committee of 300, also called the so-called Olympians. Now, there's not a lot of information on this Committee of 300, but what it is, it is a group of 300 um, individuals, and they look to um, have social convulsions on a global scale, followed by depressions as a softening up technique for bigger things to come as its principal, as its principal method of creating masses of people all over the world, who will become its welfare recipients? Now, these guys—I mean, I mean, come, it's like it's almost. Think of the committee of three hundred, like everybody who goes to Bilderberg. I mean, we're not Bilderberg. Everybody who goes to Bohemian Grove. Now, if you know the things about Bohemian Grove, well, you do know that some of the things that have came out of there about some of the male orgies and male strippers that they have had inside there, and of course, yeah, they worship their twenty-foot tall owl god called. Moloch, um, but um, this Committee of 300 is a very secretive organization, but they do plan on bringing the end to all industrializations and, and the production of nuclear-generated electrical power in what they call the post-industrial zero-growth society. Um, you know, it's kind of disgusting when you're talking about the Committee of 300 and the Bilderberg Group. How you know these very powerful individuals just all come together and they just sit and they just plot against all the people of the world and how they want to wage wars, how they just want to use their technology to dumb us down, how they want to control the masses. So 
even though just touching on the committee of 300, I think we should really just get into the Bilderberg group, who right now should be wrapping up their ceremony inside um, Virginia after they have been sitting inside their nice hotel talking about how they want to destroy the lives of us all. And anybody who watched Infowars.com saw the live feeds that Alex Jones was up there protesting a very good turnout. Um, very, um, very proud of everybody who went up there to actually to to demonstrate against the Bilderberg group. But as you saw, you know, you saw the police out there arresting people for no reason, even though they don't understand that the same people that's meeting inside Bilderberg group want to destroy them, want to de- want to destroy their lives as well, you know. But you know, that's what they do. They don't care. The police don't care. As long as they're getting paid, they really don't care if there are people out there who want to destroy their lives. But the Bilderberg Group um, was really um, formed inside 1954 at the Hotel de Bilderberg in Oosterbeek inside the Netherlands. Their whole mission is to create plans and to solidify their, their relationships needed to unify the nations of Europe with the with the U.S. This confederation of European nations will form a new empire for the first time since the days of ancient Rome. The group has been meeting since 1945 in top-secret gatherings. Although they are known publicly as the Bilderbergs, the members call themselves the Alliance. Strict rules prohibit members from discussing any plans, speeches, and policies outside their secret meetings. And, of course, the Bilderberg Group was initially financed by the Central Intelligence Agency and organized by U.S. Army General Walter Bedell Smith. Founding members included Colin Gubbins, head of British intelligence, Stansfield Turner, director of the CIA, Henry Kissinger, that evil guy. Oh, that's my buddy. I love Henry. Oh, yeah, Lord Rothschild. Okay. Oh my gosh, TJ, can you hear me? I can hear you, man. Oh my lord, I love you, Comcast. (laughs) Oh man, so where were we, everyone? Sorry for that. Thank you. All right, so we got one of our listeners texting me, telling me I'm back. Thank gosh. Okay, so where do we leave off? Um, Uh, We was talking about Bilderberg. Well, what happened is, um, inside 1954, um, they actually gathered at Bilderberg. Bilderberg was indeed created in 1945, but they gathered in 1954 at the Hotel D. Bilderberg to discuss the final plan to actually to unite the U.S. with Europe. That is where we left off. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. And we do also have to cover NATO here in a second, but... You know, one thing that I do want to talk about that's actually pretty interesting is that, you know, even though the Bilderberg Group doesn't exist, um, there was an article in the Calgary Herald a couple of days ago. And, um, you know, kudos to kudos to um, Danielle Smith because um, because she basically called out Allison Redford, who was attending Bilderberg. And she says that she's choosing the private invite-only Bilderberg conference over um, over leader Tim Tom McCullers' visit to the oil lands today. 
And she goes on to say that we have somebody who appointed himself the bully of the block, calling out Alberta's oil sands industry. And rather than meet with him, she decided to go to a secret meeting in Virginia. And then she goes on to say, I think we have to question her priorities. No, you don't, because we all know where these people's priorities lie, and it's not with the people, and it's not with your representative government. It's in funding their huge combine to bring about global governance or global government or whatever, uh, whatever their spin is this week. And she goes on to say that the taxpayers shouldn't be on the hook for her to attend this conference and that would actually chalk up about 19 thousand dollars that's put on the taxpayers for a quote networking event uh for the premier's post politics career. Well, it's not post politics. This has everything to do with what they're trying to push on the population now. And you'll see it in short little waves because they've found out that they can't make these big leaps anymore and they can't come around and just start saying that we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And the one good quote that I do have um, that TJ and I were going to go over also is um, is by Joseph Stalin. And Stalin said that print is the sharpest and strongest weapon of our party. Now, what does that what does that mean to you? Well, he understands, and he understood. He was a very smart man, albeit a a control freak, probably border on bordering on the edge of lunacy. But he understood that if you can get the people to believe a certain aspect, or if you can get them to believe a certain way, or even if you can manipulate the population, then you can actually steer them to get the desired outcome that you want. Albeit problem reaction solution, which is another one of the global elite's favorite little weapons of choice. What they do is they create a problem. They understand what kind of solution that they wish to attain or what kind of mean they wish to contain. And then they, you know, they create the problem. They get the get the people or get whatever that specific specific entity is so wrapped up and then they they offer the solution for the problem which they've created but they already know what outcome they want out of it so that's what you might see with this whole economic collapse you know you know Greece leaving the euro was a huge deal and if they do actually do it it'll be devastating because they need the euro just like they needed the uh, the amero in order to bring about global governance because what they're going to do is they're going to con- try to consolidate these things in waves. Um, am I right, TJ? They're going to bring about, you know, just like you talked about, they're going to have the three sectors, and then after they have the three sectors, then they merge the three sectors and then create the the overwhelming, loving bureaucracy known as the world government. Is that, um, is that what you've uh, basically surmised from your research? Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole thing is, so you know, you have to start one place first, you know. You have to start, and so in this case, they're starting with the European Union, and then it's going to come to the U.S. And so from there, okay, well, if you have two economies that is collapsing, hey, well, why not, why won't we just take both of them, form into one big mining union, and then create this one currency that could actually be stronger than a lot of the world's currency today and that will be stronger than the current dollar and the current euro and then you get into the whole euro america as this one central massive global empire that they will use and then eventually you get into cashless um 
uh, monetary systems and eventually the mark of the beast. Yeah, and you know the mark of the beast is something that's been around for forever, and um, and just to uh, just to reiterate my point and give you guys a little bit deeper dive into the Hegelian dialectic because we do have some time left and. <laughs> Looks like we're going to be able to take some calls and also be able to cover everything that we're that we're looking to do here. Um, I do have an audio clip of the definition of the Hegelian dialectic, and it just really goes on to to break it down about how they use problem, reaction, solution to get what they desire. So here's that clip. It's about two minutes long. Everybody enjoy it, and um, hopefully, you know, send this over to your friends and and let them hear the broadcast and and see if they can try to understand what's going on. The global banking cartel has used one tried-and-true process to create wars, rob us of our currency, and eat away at our substance. This process of control over the masses is called the Hegelian dialectic. So what is it, and how is it being used today? German philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel devised a dialectic or method to resolve a disagreement between outcomes. The dialectic is made up of three attributes. Thesis, an idea or opinion. Antithesis, the opposite idea or opinion. And synthesis, the alchemic process to bring together a wanted change. It is commonly referred to as order out of chaos and is waged against the masses in many forms. Saul Alinsky, self-avowed Marxist, proponent of the Hegelian dialectic, published this in Rules for Radicals. Any revolutionary change must be preceded by a passive, affirmative, non-challenging attitude toward change among the mass of our people. They must feel so frustrated, so defeated, so lost, so futureless in the prevailing system that they are willing to let go of the past and chance the future. George Bush became the hero of 9-11 simply due to the fact that he was the president and then rammed through legislation that threatened our liberties as we all complacently stood by and allowed it to happen. A manufactured crisis occurs, thesis. George Bush answers it by rallying public opinion and becoming the host of the tragedy, antithesis thus owning the crisis through synthesis. Equilibrium is attained. All of the once separate parts of the plan are joined together. In this example, the Patriot Act acting as the equilibrium on the desired road to tyrannical fascism in America. So that really does encapsulate it. And then what you need to be aware of, and this is why when you listen to people like Alex Jones and when you listen to people you know, like Glenn Beck, not so much Glenn Beck because either he doesn't get it or he doesn't want to get it or that's not his target market because I typically don't see Glenn Beck as somebody that is a that is a is a a devout patriot. I see him as somebody that is trying to appeal to a target audience and make his money and um fly around in his private jets. So but I uh, almost lost my train of thought. <laughs> but, you know, this is what we need to be aware of. This is what the population needs to become aware of because their synthesis at the end of the day is global governance, is global government, is a world bank, is all of these things. And they're going to do this by slow increments. And then, you know what? Global government probably won't come around in the next 10 to 15, 20 years maybe, but that's their plan. These people have 
and un, an unmatched patience. When you talk about these secret groups, these are things that are passed down, you know, beyond just the initial just the initial guys that that started this whole thing. They pass it down to the the next generation like you're seeing here at Bilderberg. You see them get pushed into, you know, the the tech world, the social media because the Bilderberg group is smart enough just like TJ and I are smart enough to know that that the internet is the future and especially social media is the future and just look at the Coney 2012 garbage. I mean, they got a bunch of high school kids to go after a guy that hadn't even been seen in 5 years that's probably dead. But they got everybody, you know, going around the entire United States trying to put up flyers about how he's the number one, you know, number one criminal of the world. I mean, come on. But they do propaganda in such a way that it makes you it makes you rally behind it. And I even found myself getting caught up in it. And then I just sat there and said, you know what? You know, I went to Uganda. You know, I went and did some background research on Uganda, and they are one of the richest countries in the world that hasn't been mined yet. And that's why you got the UN going in there. Barack Obama already sent troops over there. And they're going to go over there for their mineral grab because that's what they need. Remember, it, at the end of the at the end of the day, it's who controls all the minerals, who controls all the resources that really, really comes out on top. Just why the United States doesn't ever use their oil reserve? Why should we use ours when we can go steal somebody else's? Right, TJ? Oh yeah, I mean that's the same thing. They, um, that was the agreement that um, Kissinger made inside. Um, the seventies when he went over there to the Middle East, and of course that agreement was only for thirty years, and so now it's getting it's getting ready to expire. But I think we should transition into the banks while we're here, and you know, talk about the Federal Reserve, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, and SunTrust as, of course, the top global elite banks that exist today. Yeah, why don't you give your once over? Because I do have my um, I I can elaborate on this quite a bit because when my knowledge of fractional reserve banking and how they how they move and maneuver us into these certain scenarios like what you're seeing now, um, I'll really be able to expand. So give your give your once over and then um, and I'll try to fill in any gaps if you have any. Well, you know, almost as as if well. As we was talking today when we were talking about how, you know, when you go to put your money inside the bank, you know, <laughs> your money is really not inside the bank. What's no, TJ, <laughs> but I get a receipt that says that my money's in the bank. But the thing is, it's an IOU. Like you said today, it's an IOU. I, you know, you put your money inside the bank. You think your money inside the bank, but really what it is, your money is really not inside the bank. They give you this thing that's saying, hey, well, you know, if you come back, I owe you. But if I don't have any money, so if I was to say that, oh, well, we become bankrupt or we don't have no more money, you don't get no more money. So I'm going to just let you um, go into um, the whole entire banking system since, you know, uh, you come from the um, economics background, so take it away, Jake. Oh, gosh. Okay, so where to start? So the way that money is created in the United States is actually pretty funny. The actual American government will go and request a loan from a private bank known as the Federal Reserve. And 
the Federal Reserve issues credit to the United States amongst other nations of the world, and they are also um, debtors to some of the other nations of the world as well. So the United States, let's say that, that um, in a situation that the U.S. government wants to borrow um, $5 trillion, they will go to the Federal Reserve and request a loan from the Fed at interest – once again, at interest, it's just like um, it's just like the U.S. government going to um, Wachovia or Wells Fargo or Bank of America saying, "I would like a loan." So, so the government gets the loan at interest from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve then has the ability to do two things: they can either print the money, they can either print the paper money, or they can just issue a digital currency to the United States government. Most of the time, what you're going to see, since they deal in large, large quantities, they will they will issue the currency digitally. Now, once they have this currency, it is now up to the United States to do with it what they will. And remember, all the while, they are getting charged interest. So if they decide that they want to actually print the money, they send the uh, the notes to the U.S. Mint. The Mint then prints the Federal Reserve notes, not the U.S. dollar bill. If you look on a U.S. dollar bill at the very top, it says Federal Reserve note because that is a debt that you, the taxpayer, owe to the private Federal Reserve. So once the currency is in circulation, now it's up to the government to spend the money how they deem fit. But you run into this little challenge called fractional reserve banking. So if the United States government wants to take some of that money and investment into a project, let's say – let's take a great example um, – Amtrak. Amtrak was actually bailed out by the United States government. So what the government did is they went to the Fed saying, I need X amount of money to quote-unquote bail out Amtrak. What they did is they actually purchased Amtrak from its shareholders at a premium. So – they get the money from the Fed, go to Amtrak, buy Amtrak, and now Amtrak is part of the federal government under their little umbrella, much like GM is today. So when Amtrak takes that money and goes to the bank, what they can do is they can deposit that money. Let's say that they deposit it in Bank of America. That's their banking um, that's their banking liaison, so to speak. So they deposit their, you know, twenty trillion or, or you know, twenty billion or whatever it is. They deposit that into the Bank of America. Now, with the current regulations in place today, the Bank of America can take anywhere from it typically runs about ten percent or ten times. They can go all the way up to twenty, even thirty times. But they can leverage that money that is given given to them. They can loan out loans, basically creating money out of thin air to other companies. So let's say that they've already loaned out all of the let's let's call it just a nice round number. Let's call it a billion dollars. So the government gives Bank of America a billion dollars for um, for Amtrak, and then the Bank of America can then loan out that billion dollars to um, individuals. So once they've relinquished that entire billion, they actually can lend out up to 10 times that amount. So let's say that TJ comes along and TJ would like to uh, TJ would like to buy a car for $10,000. So TJ goes to the Bank of America and says, "I would like to borrow $10,000." The Bank of America then runs TJ's credit, says that yes, he's a worthy slave, we'll give him $10,000. 
and they give him the money out of nothing with basically an IOU that TJ signs to the bank saying that I will repay this loan with interest of the money that you created out of nothing. So let's say that they do this 10, 15 times, and this is what happened with the banking crisis of 2008. They issue a lot of what they call uh, not-so-secure loans. Basically, what the Fed did back in those days is they did the exact same thing they're doing now. They ran interest rates down to almost nothing, and then they give these banks the the ability to loan out these loans to people that probably shouldn't even be taking out the loans in the first place. But understanding how good salespeople work and understanding that banks make monies off of the interest for shooting out the loans, then they try to loan out as much money as possible. So what happens? What happens is exactly what happened in Greece. You have a bunch of outstanding debt which can never be paid back because you have fractionalized the amount of money that is in circulation i.e. you have added too much money in circulation and there is not enough paper money nor enough digital currency to pay back not even the original loan but to pay back the interest on top of that. So then what you have is you have what's called a banking crisis. Now there are three really, really bad parts of a banking crisis. Two of them we have already seen in Greece. The third one I'm going to leave it alone. It's just inflation and deflation. Now, inflation and deflation is actually controlled by the amount of money that is in circulation at that given time. The two things that you saw in Greece is, number one, you, well, you haven't seen the second one yet, but it's coming. Believe me, it's coming, and you can you know, mark the broadcast or whatever. They'll start talking about it. They've already mentioned it, but they're going to do it, and that is what's called a bank holiday. Bank holidays are pretty bad, but when you get what happened in Greece a week and a half ago, that is the detriment of the fractional reserve banking system, which is called the bank run. That is where every person, um, going back to our example with TJ and him having his $10,000, um, and then he talked about how you know, when I go to the bank, I've got my money in the bank account, which is really just an IOU that the bank has under your account. Everybody goes and tries to pull out their money at the same time. Well, recent numbers have actually shown that banks at any given time will have less than 1% of the outstanding loans that they have on hand. So all it takes is 1% of the population to go and try to claim their money, and lo and behold, they find out that it's not there. The exact same thing is what happened in the first financial collapse, and it is exactly what is happening now. You are having bank runs. You're going to have bank holidays, which what a bank holiday is, and in the case of Greece, what they're going to do is they're going to declare a bank holiday. They're going to remove the euro from Greece, and they're going to imprint their new, their new currency and then reopen the banks. The only bad part is, is that new currency that Greece will create will only buy a fraction of what the euro will buy. And that's why you saw such a great run on the banks because everybody wanted to get out that money that was going to be worth more than the new currency that they're going to bring in. It would be much like, TJ, if you and I had um, 1,000 Federal Reserve notes in the bank and we also had $1,000 worth of gold coins. You know, Going and getting our gold coins rather than getting out the money because we know that the gold coins are going to be worth more than the fiat currency at the end of the day. So – 
fractional reserve banking in a nutshell is basically money created out of nothing, which is then leveraged out up to 10 times um, depending – and actually, once again, even 20, 30 times depending on who's doing the lending. And depending on how strict the banking regulations are, that's where you can get into a lot of trouble. And that's why when TJ and I talk about the Fed, it is the engine that drives this debt crisis. Remember, every dollar that is created, a dollar of debt is created to the private Federal Reserve. So understand that the same uh, the same applies to the euro, the same applies to the European central banks, the same applies to any central banking regulation. It is a dollar of debt that you pay to a private bank in order to issue your currency. And the easiest way to get out of this, and then I'll transition it to TJ, and we'll talk about specific endeavors of these criminal organizations known as the megabanks. But the simplest way out of it is understanding just basic macroeconomics. Macroeconomics states that if you – the only way to control a currency, no matter what it is backed with, is to be able to control the amount of money into circulation. So if you control the amount of money in circulation, then you will – eventually you will weed out the challenges that are faced with fractional reserve banking. And that's what the Fed does, and that's in their mission statement, is to control inflation and deflation by controlling the amount of money in the circulation. But what you see with this QE2 and these QE3 is that they just keep pumping in and pumping in and pumping in more money, trying to spend their way out of debt, which has never been achieved. No country has ever spent their way out of debt. So, TJ, why don't you talk about the criminal activities of the people that I just left, Wells Fargo? Well, you know, um, when you really get into these global elite banks, these banks, of course, are ran by the very wealthy, wealthy elite, and all of them have this central agenda. Um, it wasn't not too long ago when you had Wells Fargo was actually called laundering a lot of, I believe, I believe it was billions or if it was millions of dollars. Three hundred and seventy billion is what it was. Yeah, three hundred seventy billion dollars for a drug cartel. But yet you saw no investigation, you saw no penalties, you saw nothing whatsoever to these people. And whether or not you believe it or not, there is an economic collapse happening. It may not happen this year, it may not happen next year, but at some point in time there's going to be an economic collapse. And when it happens, it's going to be huge. In fact, the, eco the economic collapse has actually already begun. It hasn't happened yet, but what you are seeing inside uh, Greece – what you're seeing inside the European Union is going to spread to the U.S. Every day, our dollar is actually being devalued, and eventually it's going to be completely worthless. There is something, like I said, the economic, the economic collapse is going to be big, and when it's happening, it's going to shake the foundations of people all over the world. And this is going to be something that you're not going to just crawl out to. You know, they're going to use this economic collapse to basically to usher in their new currency and their new union and their new um, basically rights. And it really is order out of chaos because what they essentially do is they do create a problem and they do give you the solution. So either way, you really don't have a choice. And, um, if anybody have any questions or if you want to talk about anything, the number to the show is 
702-753-1916. That is 602-753-1916. And um, Jake, why don't you talk about Bank of America? Okay. Well, the Bank of America is probably uh, – it's not the Bank of America, everybody. Let's just face it. It is a global bank, you know, much like all the rest of these, the J.P. Morgan, the Goldman Sachs. And they're involved in all kinds of laundering. It's the same kind of thing with Wells Fargo and Wachovia. They launder drug money for the for the big crime syndicate. And and the the funny thing is is um, TJ, when you said that Wells Fargo, they they didn't face a penalty. They actually did, and it was it was three. It was something less than three percent. So TJ, that'd be like you going into a bank, walking out with a million dollars. And a couple of armed guards saying, "Hey, man, if you don't give us three thousand bucks, we're going to turn you into the cops." <laughs> I mean, it's 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 that it's that ludicrous. But that's exactly what happened. Now, Bank of America is one of those large conglomerates. They've actually, I think that I saw this the other day, but I'm not 100% sure. Maybe somebody could, you know, do some research or at least back me up. But I think that they have some inner workings with Merrill Lynch now, and Merrill Lynch is one of those, you know, private retirement companies so good luck with that everyone to not get robbed by those guys but the one thing that i would like to talk about and th these are the people that we really need to harp on is goldman sachs now why do i point out goldman sachs and jamie Dimon and all of those guys well goldman sachs is the financial arm of this economic terror storm that we see from the global elite look at and just do a google search and prepare to throw up on yourself but google how many former executives from goldman sachs are involved in the united states government and it's always something revolving the treasury hank paulson was a former ceo of goldman sachs what was he oh he was the chairman of the fed ben bernanke former goldman sachs and then you look at the entire globe, you see the leader getting put into Italy as former Goldman Sachs. The leader getting put into Spain as former Goldman Sachs. Why do all these guys get put into these positions? They're ministers of finance. Why do you think that they're all over there? Because they know the playbook. It's kind of like if TJ and I were going to go play for the Falcons this weekend, and they said, okay, TJ, on this play, you're going to run a streak pattern, and Jake, on this play, you're going to run a hook. And then when they run, when we run the play, everybody goes, oh, my gosh, how do they know what to do? They're told what to do. They're instructed on how to get these countries to sign on to debt. Ireland is a prime example. Ireland was a completely sovereign nation. They joined the EU, and then six months later, they're freaking bankrupt because they were signed on to the same derivatives garbage that every other country is. And I'm not just stealing quotes from Alex Jones. It's really true. And you look at people that have actually done their research and done their homework. You know, you get signed on to a bunch of derivatives, and once again, derivatives are very simple. They're just bets, and all they are – it's exactly what John Corzine got into trouble for, and I'll go into that in just one second, and then I'll turn it over to TJ, and we'll wrap up. But they're just bets, and the only way that you can get a – a derivative to pay off is you have to win the bet. If you lose the bet, you lose. So let's say that you have a derivative for you know gold going over a thousand bucks, and you put it on a dollar. And if it goes over a thousand bucks and you sell your derivative, then you get a hundred bucks. Or if gold never goes above it in in the design time frame that you've put your bet in, then you lose your dollar. So 
in essence, what happens is you have a bunch of yes-no bets going on, and there are thousands, even millions of these transactions going on daily. And if everybody goes back to the derivatives and the derivatives bubble pops, then look out, everybody, because you do not have enough – there is not enough currency in the world to even pay off a fraction of the derivatives debt. I think the last time I checked – was on zero hedge and it was like uh, six months ago or something. And it's like 73 times the global GDP is the amount of derivatives that are out there. It's like 1.5 quadrillion, you know, quadrillion. I don't even know how many zeros that is, but it's 73 times the global GDP. So watch that. If those derivatives start popping, look out everybody because we are in for a one nasty ride. But do yourself a favor and don't take my word for it. Don't take TJ's word for it on this, you know, this global um, banking government that they're trying to set up. Do your own research, and we'll give you some of the avenues to take. You know, we covered a ton of them here with with the UN, the Trilateral Commission. Go out and read about these people. Go out and find out what these people do, and then you'll see how it all ties in together. You know, if you put all of this stuff down on the floor one day and started looking at it, you would see that it's just one web of lies that, in essence, always ends up in the same thing, and that's command and control. TJ, your final thoughts? You know, um, a lot of people always ask us, well, how do we know? You know, is it because we have people on the inside? And the answer is no, we don't have people on the, on the inside. But we actually do research, and we actually trace the money back, and we actually are awake, and we look past what is going on. You know, you you just can't look at the left. If they're doing something on the left, you have to look at what is going on on the right. And next week will be um, part two of the Shout of Government when we when we will be getting into the religious aspects of it, talking about the Illuminati and their structure and what are they are actually planning to do. And really, we're going to break it down to who they are, what they are, and who are these people at the top? Who are the global elite? Yeah, and I think it's it's really it's really funny when you start talking to people about the Illuminati and you start talking to them about actual people that that worship Satan and that worship owls and stuff. And people are like, "Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist, really?" There was a guy going through the airport that got arrested because he had what six barbecued babies that he was taking to a bunch of elite that were wrapped in gold leaves for them to eat. I mean, come on. Now, if you guys want something really really nuts to look up. Why don't you guys look up and do some research, and if anybody has studied their history, they know about this company. Look up IG Farben. Oh, man. IG Farben <laughs> is the oh, ultimate power structure, and what TJ and I will go into next week is about King Solomon's treasure, the Knights Templar, and about my theory that has actually been backed up by a couple of others that the Nazis actually did find King Solomon's treasure, and that's how they were able to fund the war, and then – and then expanded it through IG Farben to the United States through Operation Paperclip, amongst other things. So I really appreciate everybody for tuning in. TJ, thank you for your expertise on this topic. Um, I know you guys are going to enjoy the next show where we dive into the religious aspect of it. So everybody bring your tinfoil hats, and we'll all crush them together with the with the truth. And um, once again, thanks for listening. And you know, if you ever want to check it out, go to our site. Or go to my site, you know, wearenotcattle.net. You'll be able to see all the links that we put on from the broadcast. We'll, we'll do that probably next week. And, um, you know, as we say always, go get a friend like TJ. Both of you guys get informed. 
and then get involved and fight this global banking cartel that we all face. God bless you, everyone. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.